Hey guys, Lucas from To The Helpless here. We just edited our new EP. It's four tracks. The EP is called The Fringes of Normality. We're leaving with you the first track of the EP, Born to Lose, Death Comes Ripping. It talks about the theme of death seen through the, the prism of the pandemic. The EP was recorded by us here in Madrid, Spain. It was mastered by the one and only Master Genie, 90s punk hero. Hope you enjoy the song. You'll see it makes a quick nod to Death Comes Ripping by The Misfits. We really hope uh, you enjoy the song. Don't forget to check out the entire EP in any of your favorite streaming platforms. To the Helpless, The Fringes of Normality is the name of the EP. And this is Death Comes Ripping. Enjoy. My name is Liam Bird and welcome to this fest-ish kind of uh, Punks in Pubs podcast special. 
I mean, uh, let's face it, 2020 has been fucking shit. COVID has made the name of this podcast redundant. Uh, there's only been one interview that I've done this year that was in a pub, and that was the one and only live show back in February at the uh, Signature Brew Bar. Since then, we have been doing Punks in Pubs via Zoom, and I fucking hate it, uh, but things are starting to look better in 2021. Uh, the vaccine is being rolled out, and I hope by the summer we might actually be punks in pubs once again. But right now, it's still quite bleak. As I speak, London has been put into a new lockdown uh, that has stopped families coming together for Christmas. It's not only... London also is in the southeast and east of England. Uh, I mean, ugh, it's so fucking horrible. COVID has robbed so many of us of so many things. And I think for many, Christmas was something that they planned because essentially the UK government told them they could fucking do it. Only two days ago, they said that we could do this. And then they went back on their word and uh, they essentially told us that we couldn't go home for Christmas. Oh, I'm speaking on an emotional level because I understand that uh, science change and this, like the virus has supposedly morphed into something else, but the government should never have promised something that they knew that they couldn't guarantee. I mean, I fucking hate him. I, I, I hate Boris. <laughs> I hate the Tories. And I want to punch the stupid fucker in the fucking throat, the cunt. Keep it light, Liam. It's a Christmas special here. Yeah? <laughs> sorry guys it's just really frustrating uh let's talk about my guest for this christmas special a man who i think will be in the queue with me to punch that melting snowman in the fucking throat my guest for this christmas special is the only man you think of when you think of christmas that's right it's steve ignorant of crass of course you think of steve steve kindly spoke to me about his indifference on Christmas and his loathing for Christmas songs. He was really the perfect man to speak to about Christmas. Away from Christmas, Steve reveals that he auditioned for the global TV hit The Crown, uh, which is amazing. Steve also speaks about how how seeing a skinhead play Scar sparked his love for music and how The Clash sparked his love for punk. We, of course, talk about Crass and his time in the band, as well as feeling lost once the band has split up. Steve also talks about his wish of wanting to work with Sleaford Mods and Bobby Vinyl. So we talk about that and a bit more. I'll be back after my chat with Steve, but enjoy this, this Christmas special with myself and Steve. Get 
staring down the screen at me is a man who uh, most people will know as uh, one of the co-founders of the legendary punk band Crass. Steve, how are you? Bonus of fiddle as fuck. <laughs> Whatever that means. I have no idea. That just sounded like uh, some Cockney stuff that I've never heard in my life. No, uh, actually, I got it from a, an American book um, called uh, P.S. Your Cat Is Dead. P.S. Your Cat Is Dead. Yeah, nothing to do with the TV program. There's a TV program called yeah, PS. Yeah, there was a there was a TV program called PS Your Cat Is Dead. I watched it, thinking yeah. it was going to be about the book, and it wasn't at all. And was it about uh, the cat? Was what was it about? I'm now interested in to know what this this show's about. Oh, I can't. I'll switch it off, mate. As minute I realised it wasn't about the book, I was like, oh, "Fuck that." Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, let, let's start off then talking about the subject matter that's kind of rocked this year. The Crown. You watching it? No. Oh, mate, it's a great hate watch. Well, the funny thing is that I was invited last year. Uh, I was invited down. I, was, I suddenly got, got this email through. Um, we'll send you the script. Uh, we're from uh, this program called The Crown. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Uh, uh, we're doing a program about the 70s, and it's going to be when Michael, not Nyman, that's a bloody, uh, what's it, when Michael Fagin yeah, uh, yeah. breaks into the uh, Queen's bedroom. Yes. And we'd like you we'd like you to be an old man, an old man, to talk to him <laughs> in the street. And, I'm like, and the deal was, they sent me, so this is the night before, so I had to get up in the morning, they sent me the script through, um, I had to read it and try and learn it. The next day I had to go down to London, do the audition and come back. Uh, the deal was, if I got the part, they'd pay for the um, expenses. Obviously, I never got the part because I was so fucking pissed off going all the way down there and they made me wait half an hour before I went into the actual audition. And all I could hear was like, when I was in um, Acapulco with them, um, working with Brad, um, Pitt, you know, all these people younger than me fucking pissed off, walked in. And I just want me to do it. Well, just do it straight. Fucking looks right in a woman's eyes, uh, and I think I frightened her, so I didn't get it. <laughs> apart from that, I'm a shit actor. But... I was going to say, is acting something you, you've you've enjoyed? Is that something you've always wanted to follow? No, I've done it once. I did it once, and I didn't realise how bloody hard it was. It was only um, I was doing a play with a friend of mine called John Sharian, whose name pops up in uh, places down again, and he put on a play at the Man in the Moon Theatre, Kings Road, 1990-something. I played the lead part uh, of a, a play called Tooth of Crime. Rehearsed it, everything, did all this, and I didn't realise how fucking difficult it was. Mm. Um, when you're doing gigs uh, every night, you move you'll do something slightly different. When you're doing a play, you've got to be rigid to that script. And it was sometimes uh, you'd feel absolutely, you know, you, you're doing it every night. And sometimes it was so difficult to lift your hands above your waist. And what do you do with your hands when you're acting? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, was, it was a totally different experience. And I thought, fucking hell, you know. I mean, I'm sure that um, actors would find it the same if they went on stage. Yeah, well, I was going to ask then. So in that case, then the first time you went on stage and the first time you went on stage as an actor, was you more scared as an actor than you was as a as a musician? Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. Because if you fuck it up, if you fuck it up as a musician, um, you go, well, you just look at the bass player usually, <laughs> and you just go, and they think it's them. Yeah, all right. Or you look at the guitarist, you go. Mm. But if you're playing with other people in the cast, and they know they've got their got to get their cue off of you, uh, and fuck, you know, the first time we did it, I actually forgot my lines. But um, yeah, I was working with people who'd been to acting school and all that sort of stuff, you know. And I think there was a bit of animosity there because I did, I wasn't. Um, it was what's it called? It, it, um, in the round or something? In the round, it wasn't. Yeah. 
yeah, you know, it was just a, a little thing. But it was a really, really interesting experience to do, you know. So, so he just scared you straight off. I'm, I'm never, I'm, I'm, I'm okay. I'm all right singing and performing on stage and, and doing my other stuff, but fuck that noise. Well, um, acting, I, I don't know. It's a bit like when you, um, I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but uh, one time uh, um, um, people, people always say, you know, it's like a classic thing. Oh, I, you know, I could do a pornographic movie. Right, I'll get your clothes off. Yeah. I, well, there's eight people here. Yeah, well, if you do a pornographic film, there's going to be 20 people here with lights and Christ knows what. So get your clothes off and get an hard on. Go on. And, uh, and put, put, your, put your thing there. Um, I can't, well, there you go. You can't do it. Um, and it's that same thing of like, um, all right, uh, try and look natural when someone's pointing the camera at you. You can't do it. Yeah. Um, and there was these two blokes, two Dutch blokes who come around and did this film, which ended up being There Is No Authority But Yourself. And they come around my house. And uh, I went, oh, do you want some coffee? And I went, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I opened a couple of doors, you know, literally just get the co- I went, are you filming? And I went, yeah. And I couldn't do it. I was so self-conscious. I couldn't get the coffee out without sort of like, oh, it was all suddenly. And I went, you've got to turn the cameras off, mate. Yeah. It's a very strange thing, just... Well, in my former life, I used to make radio documentaries, and it's amazing how people react once you put a mic in their face. Because you'll you'll notice that people will start shifting away from the mic, and because it's just so unnatural. And I think it's a case that they realise that their whatever they do or whatever they're saying, if it's film, however you react, is now being kept, and someone now has that. So if you say or or do something that looks a bit weird, you're automatically judging yourself. And and I think that's where people kind of don't come natural to either acting or performing or or whatever. It is like you, you're self criticizing yourself, and and you're just so worried, and you just like you say, you just kind of freeze up. And it's it's a bit like the first time you hear your own voice from headphones. Yeah, yeah. My God, do I really say? Okay, no, I don't like it. Or the first time you see yourself on film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the devastating reali- realization I have one of the biggest noses in the world was was a hard hitting thing when I can remember doing something in college and just thinking, "Is that my fucking nose?" I thought I was a yeah. good-looking man. What the fuck happened? Uh, for us people with big noses, <laughs> just remember what Caesar did. <laughs> <laughs> Murdered a lot of people. <laughs> well, yeah. There you go, mate. Can't, can't be worse than Donald. Um, <laughs> there true. you go. Well, let's keep it light. It's meant to be a Christmas special episode. How are you around Christmas? Are you a Christmas guy or are you kind of one of those people who are like, it just, it's another day. Let's just keep keep going yeah I, I, um i used to do the christmas thing because yana likes it my wife you know but um uh, because it's just, it's just not for me um and there's something you know um i've never been into obviously i'm vegetarian mm. uh, but i've never been to roast dinners so what the fuck are we eat? you know we'll have the roast dinner thing well fuck, and then people come around we've thought up we've just been to our auntie we've had well, um so one year uh me and yana just had pasta uh, yeah. Spaghetti with um, um, olive oil and garlic in it, and that was our Christmas dinner. And, and then, uh, of course, that leaves you room to eat all the goodie bits like the chocolates and the things, you know. Um, so, no, we'll have, you know, we'll have a little sort of some sort of tree. Uh, we've got a little bush that we bring indoors and put lights around it. We we'll sort of get into it. Yeah. Um, but the the consumery uh, getting stressed, uh, you know. 
uh, we've got no kids, so I ain't got to worry about that. Uh, um, I don't mind it, but it's um, just wish they'd put something decent on TV. I got my TV guide for Christmas this year, and a whole day on, I think it's Christmas Eve, is carry-on films. For fuck's sake, it's in one Sid James go, <laughs> where's all the bird shit? <laughs> uh, and that's it, you've seen it. You know, I don't, and Barbara Windsor, bless her, what a loss. You know, what a, what a great actress. Um, you know, that's a sad thing. But um, um, And Home Alone, of course. And, of course, then you've got, you know, in, in some way I'm glad that I can't go to the pub because now I've not got to suffer. It's Christmas! Oh, God. Dun, 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 dun. And when the sleigh bells ring, the slow... Oh, and there's going to be Cliff any minute. Here he comes. And <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I'm coming on for Christmas. And here it comes. Do, 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 do. Oh, for fuck's sake. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, I'm a fat one. I'm a very Christmassy sort of guy. I, I feel like I've picked the right person for this episode. Um, I mean, like, so you're not a fan of any Christmas songs at all, then? There's, like, none that you go, oh, that's, that's pretty decent, actually. No. Yes, <laughs> 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 nuts roasting on an open fire. Right, I live in a block of flats. Step uh, Into no. Christmas by Elton John is a tune, mate. It's a good song. Oh, the thing is, I used to really like Elton John when he'd done Yellow Brick Road, Rocket Man and all that sort of stuff. But he got into this, um, his voice has changed, the way he sings. Uh, and instead of saying, and if I, and he always goes, and if I, and it's this real um, mid-Atlantic uh, American voice, uh, da, 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 and I don't like it no more. Well, did you ever no. see that COVID video he did where about a load of celebrities got together to raise some money? And I, I think he sang, oh, what was he singing? Oh, I Can't Dance. And it literally was like, dear, 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 dear. It wasn't pronouncing like any of the vowels. It was just like, what are you doing, man? This is so weird. I, I know. It's, it's a bit like, um, I love it to death. Um, Amy Winehouse. Yeah. Uh, you can dig my this. We only can remember. What? I mean, I know my accent is shit. And um, someone from France wouldn't understand it. And certainly um, our wonderful, wonderful prime minister. <laughs> And thank you for allowing us to have a Christmas, but make it little. And for assuring <laughs> us that next year, Christmas will be here. Thank you so much, you fucking disheveled fucking arsehole. But uh, there you go. Don't, let's go down, let's go up. Christmas as a kid was that something you enjoyed as a kid or was it something that you just like 
again, the, you saw it as kind of materialistic and not for me. No, I did like it. I liked it very much because it was the whole, um, I think because uh, then I was doing it with the family um, and it was the routines. I don't know, there's something comforting about it. Um, in those days, uh, you, uh, I'm talking about the uh, 60s, uh, and you'd 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 make paper you stick the paper chains together yeah and do all that and you put the tinsel up and uh, it was very exciting and um, I mean I sort of knew very my brother told me that Santa Claus you know Father Christmas didn't exist uh, thanks for that Dave um, you know burst my bubble why don't you and uh, but no I used to really really enjoy it you know as a kid um, really enjoy it but the older I got the more it and certainly now. Uh, when you, you know, you go to buy your shopping um, in October and they've already got the Christmas crackers out and it's like, for fuck's sake, you know, um, and just that bit colours it. I don't know, maybe the pagans should do something about it and bring it back to the way it used to be. Sort of all running around naked, bit cold though, running around naked, but, you know. Let's talk about yourself then. And um, you grew up in a period where a lot of people kind of see it as like the greatest music here of the 60s and 70s. I mean, you had artists like Hendrix, Beatles, Elvis, Dylan, Beach Boys, Aretha Franklin, Bowie, who I know you've spoken about having a passion for. Uh, I mean, how much music was in your life growing up? And was it something that was kind of in your household as well, like on the radio? Or was it something that you kind of was very precious to you that you kept away from home? Uh, no, when I grew up, I was living with my grandparents. Um, and they were um, obviously been Christ, I was born in... Fucking hell, 1903 or something like that. I mean, um, so that been through two world wars, uh, rationing had stopped. Uh, uh, I was born in 57. I think rationing stopped in 1954 or 55. I don't know. Goggle that. Yeah. Um, so everything was like really, and I remember, um, Turkey was never heard of, you know, um, the, the, obviously it's when I was eating meat when I was a kid it was a roast chicken for, for Christmas dinner or a bit of roast pork you know um, boost you never bloody got and all this stuff but music wise um, the the music we used to listen to was what my grandparents used to like to listen to and my grandmother's favourite was God help us Frank, Frankie Ifield I remember you uh, she used to love the black and white minstrel show for example and although that, that old um um uh, uh, jazz yep. thing, you know. Um, and my grand, my grandfather used to like brass bands, um, but we did have a radiogram eventually. And of course, we had um, uh, Ready Steady Go, uh, the Six Five Special, I think it was called programs for younger people. Um, and uh, and my mum was a bit younger, so of course there were things on the radio, but it was just things like uh, what you just hear on the radio. Yeah. Um, so I never really took much notice of that. You know, I, I sort of knew who the Beatles were. I knew who uh, Kathy Kirby was, for example, because she always wore that bright lipstick. Uh, Shirley Bassey um, was always, my God, you know, I could almost see her nipples, you know, because she always wore these red, very revealing things, you know. So, um, uh, and the Walker Brothers thing. So it wasn't until, really, I didn't become aware of music um, until 1969, 1968, 1969, and I was sitting, uh, uh, and I remember it was summer, uh, sitting on a friend's doorstep, uh, back doorstep, and this uh, bloke from next door came walking down in a in this amazing suit, uh, which shimmered in two colours, uh, and he had a shaven head with two partings in it. Went in and put on this amazing, uh, put on this record, and all of a sudden it was like, I said, yeah, boom, 
5456 and that's it i was lost hmm. uh, to scar and that was my first real introduction to music so so was it a case of like seeing this like extravagant looking man and then the music as well or, or like for you or do you think if you just saw someone who was like in a suit and a tie and he was listening to to that music you would have you would still had that kind of interaction no because it wasn't just it was a two-tone suit and it was the first skin i've ever, ever seen yeah um and uh the music was amazing and we sort of me and my mates sort of stood up and went, oh, what the fuck is that and that was the first point i thought i want now i want my own identity i want to look like that um as uh, um but then after that um i was taken uh, um uh, by my sister to see a film called west side story um and this is when cinemas uh, um just had one big screen yeah. i mean just huge and the, just the overture and all those colours on the screen, but the music. And from that point on, I was lost. And that's when I got into Motown uh, and Burt Bacharach uh, because, of, because of the uh, the brass and the violins. And I think ever since I saw West Side Story, I've always been trying to find, you know, I've always, when I play, you know, plunk about on piano, I've always been trying to find out how to play um, tonight because just that's, you know, just those hanging chords and things. Um, so that's, I think, where it comes from for me. Uh, um, obviously, I've got into the Beatles and, and, you know, Abbey Road, I think, is one of their, is one of my favourite of, of theirs. You know, uh, then, of course, there was Bowie, but then you've got the Who. Um, and, you know, but that's, I think that was my, that's, that Scar 5456 was like, boom, I've got my own identity. I can listen to what I want to, which I started doing. So how quickly did then, then you start adapting into, like, the, the, the image of a skinhead like we were you like obviously I, I don't know when you started shaving your heads but um were you, were you instantly like that's it i'm going home where's the clippers i'm getting rid yeah uh, I, I literally saved up money um and uh first of all i got my hair cut cropped and actually everyone liked it <laughs> my parents and grandparents oh well, that's a lovely haircut you know but then i had to save up and save up and uh i, I had to have a uh, obviously i couldn't afford a ben sherman um, so it was, uh, uh, everybody was doing copies. Yeah. Um, you'd go down Marks, not Marks and Spencer's, but I don't know, Woolworths, and you could get a cheap copy of a, of a you know, button down collar shirt. So you vaguely look something like it. Um, because it's a bit like the, the punk thing when it came out. Oh, you know, um, it's all about your own identity. Yeah, but I want to look like, you know, someone else. So you'd go down to sex, um, you know, at the King's Road, and it would be so expensive. You'd have to save up for it, or no one, you know. Um, and it was the same with the skinhead thing, you know. I never ever had the proper stuff, you know, because it was so expensive. Did you do that then? Did you go down to sex and like because obviously that's like a notorious shop whereabouts everyone kind of knows it's Vivian Westwood's and uh, Malcolm McLaren's kind of empire. Did you go in then? And if you did, did you find it like? Kind of, I've heard stories of it being quite elitist. Like you walk in there, and all of a sudden you're judged. Whereas punk was meant to be like this free spirit of of like be whatever you want to be. I mean, if you did go, was that how did you find it? I went down there with uh, two friends, and I, um, we were just, I weren't going to buy anything. Just went in there just to see, and uh, I was confronted by this woman wearing uh, uh, contact lenses, black contact lenses, uh, and I was like, "What's up with your eyes?" And she went, oh, it's contact lenses. I was like, oh, right. And we sort of stood there and looked around and then fucked off again. <laughs> it was uh, quite intimidating. It turned out that woman was Jordan. And I met her, you know, a couple of years ago. And she's a lovely woman. 
you know, um, and I'd advise anyone, if you want to know about those times, read her fucking book. I'm not bugging it, but do read her book, you know, Defying Gravity. It's a real insight. But um, I think that's what it was all about. It was all about you walking in. If you're coming in to buy something, you're here for a reason. Explain what that reason is. And in a way, in an arty sort of way, I'll get that. But on the other hand, I just sort of want to look around, mate. But I'm intimidated. So fuck it. I'll, I'll go down a cheaper shop then and get me fluorescent socks there then and get them cheaper. Back from the Roxy. Okay. I never must apply in there anyway. Said I only want it. Well behaved, boys. Do they think a thousand rocket phones are just fucking toys? Fuck them. Try not to make my stand against what I feel is wrong with this land. Just sit there on their other fed asses, feeling off the sweat of less fortunate class. Did the fucking barrel cut their fingers on a bun? Got control, won't let it be forgotten. Do the reality the wrong and ever done. You're also a person who's known for loving literature and the words, um, and and you got into poetry, I believe, at quite a young age. How how did that play into being like a, a young, a young East End lad skinhead? Also getting into this world that I I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but would be seen as quite effeminate and kind of like not the macho macho image that would be betrayed in that time you've just said it you know uh, um that's what i was judged at if, um i'm going to use their terms as they spoke in in those days and uh what's that you know what's that book you've got it's poetry i uh yeah it's a bloke called walt whitman who i was an american bloke and he was uh, he was in a civil war and he writes about people being shot in a civil war. And, you know, it's, it's really, really good. You know, well, you fucking puff. Uh, well, I, no, but I just like that. You fucking puff. What? You want to, it's like that Billy Elliot film. Yeah. You want to be a fucking dancer? You puff. What, you puff? Have you seen ballet dance? Fu- they've got muscles on fucking muscles. I would never take on a ballet dance in a fucking fight because you, you are coming down, mate. And in the end, I was like, well, I don't care. Uh, because there was something about reading those words, uh, and I was never really into the American Civil War, but the way that um, there's one uh, poem that Walt Whitman uh, writes, um, when lilacs last in the dooryard bloomed, and it's about these uh, couple get a letter uh, from their son, who's been sh- who's obviously been killed in, in, the, in the Civil War. And that to me was really, you know, I wanted to write like that. Um, and after that, I discovered uh, Graham Greene, uh, Brighton Rock, um, and then I discovered uh, Barry Hines, Stan Barstow, and the Sinato, those sort of writers, and it, they were talk- rather than reading books like uh, The Line of Witch in the Wardrobe or um, um, Swallows and Amazons, where it's all these upper class or middle class kids, going to, we're going to school and we're taking our luggage. Aye, we take it. You come home at half past three. Oh, no, it's all, and it's all, look here. I say, that if, uh, the minute I read uh, Kess by Barry Hines, at last you're talking about me. So did you try and, like, find a community of people who enjoyed poetry? Did you ever go to, like, a poetry read or even stand up on stage and, and perform poetry? No, the sort of poetry I was, I was writing at the time was that typical la-la-la-la-la, like uh, birthday card stuff. Yeah. La 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 la
And it wasn't until I met um, uh, Penny Rambo and, and G uh, and the, Dahl, uh, the people who lived in the Dahl House that time, which became known as Crasso, um, that they actually encouraged me because uh, I was very embarrassed about it. And they, they really encouraged me. And, and it was a guy called Dick LeBeau uh, who uh, put me on to Walt Whitman. And it was Penny Rambo who said, um, well, try and read this book. And it was On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Uh, well, I couldn't fucking read it because there was no punctuation. So I was getting out of breath reading it. I'm like, that's uh, And uh, then he said, try this one. And it was um, Last Exit to Brooklyn by Hubert Selby Jr. Yeah. And that I clipped into straight away because it was about working class, the, the, the fights, drinking, all this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, that's that's how I got into that, you know, but... Um, you know, I certainly wasn't a poet. I didn't see myself as a poet, but I just wanted to write something. You know, David Bowie was writing these songs uh, that meant something to me. And I thought, you know, I'm sure I can do that. I mean, how confusing was it for you then, like growing up, whereabouts, that the people who you surrounded yourself with were like the working class people of Dagenham. And then all of a sudden you're meeting this kind of hippie middle class guy like penny who understood you or got you or tried to get you i i like obviously we we kind of pretend now that we don't live in a class system but we still do but i've got friends now who who are rich poor whatever and and it doesn't seem like much of a deal but i me in my kind of ignorance i would see it like in the 60s or 70s it was still like a big deal yeah, it certainly was. Yeah, um, and I just will. Um, when I went to a uh, dial house, uh, and I was like, "Oh, this is amazing," you know, because uh, there was a guy called George Tarbuck uh, who became George Fingers Tarbuck. He played on a, a on the Peel sessions on piano, and there was a piano at dial house, and quite often George Tarbuck would come over and start playing piano, playing it on John songs, and me and him would be singing together, you know, and. Um, Stuff like that. And so I thought, it was, oh, this is an amazing place. You know, if you want to draw, you can draw. If you want to cook, you can cook. Hmm. I mean, I remember G saying, um, do you want to learn how to cook? And I went, yeah. And she went, well, get, get the rice down. I went, okay, which one is the rice? And she went, that one. Oh, okay. I didn't fucking have fucking pearl barley. Like, Jesus Christ. Jeez. <laughs> you ever tried to eat pearl barley? It comes out the way it goes in. It's fucking awful. Anyway. <laughs> But, um, so all this stuff. So I was in this real cop. So I went back to Dagenham. I've been to this amazing place, and part of me thought I should take them, but the other, the other part of me was like, no, because they'll fuck it. Mm. Um, it, it um, and I, I've got to keep this one for me. Um, um, but that proved me wrong when later it was crass, and there were working class kids. If I let's use that term, there was working class kids coming from all over the world to stay at Dole House and there was no class structure. It, it just made no difference. Yeah. So it was okay, but you had to respect it. And, and I think that, um, uh, going back to what you, you know, you already originally saying was that, yeah, it, it, it didn't, it's something I, it was my escape and I had to have that for me to get out of there. And that's, I suppose that's it really. Well, let's talk a little bit about punk then, because it's quite well known. You've told it quite a few times that you went to a Clash show and, and you saw them perform. And that was kind of like, I can do that. Like, I, I want to do that. What was it about the Clash then that you that you saw and went, OK, 
like yeah that i'm enjoying what they're doing but i can do better where, where where was like the kind of thinking behind that i went in there and i saw i saw the clash play and i was like just fucking blown away literally i mean it was just i can't describe just oh i've got goose people's now you know just how bam fucking hell you know this is this is it this yeah. you know just and when joe summer went and people going, oh, your shit, your shit, and all this, and throwing plastic glasses or whatever. And he went, well, if you think you'd do better, start your own band. And I thought, right, I will. Never think I ever could. Coming from Dagnum, I mean, uh, my musical thing uh, was you'd go down the local pub uh, at a weekend, and there'd be a resident band there with an organ, you know, and um, uh, drums and a guitar. And they'd be playing things like Sorrow or... Um, when you begin the begin, you know, to, or um, I'm forever blowing, but you have to be playing all these bloody songs. I was always like, well, of course I'd like to be a pop star, um, but where the fuck do I buy a guitar in Dagenham? Where do I, if I want to be a trumpet and a jazz band, where the fuck do I buy a trumpet? And secondly, how do you play it? To be a musician, uh, you've got to read music and you've got to do all this. I don't know how to do that. When uh, The Clash said that, I was like, right, I'm going to start a band. And then I realised when I met Penn, no, um, you haven't got to learn music. And that's the wonderful thing about that Clash. And that's why I've always loved The Clash. Mm. You know, I, I have to say that, you know, that first album they did, um, that opened doors for me because it, you didn't have to go to um, a, a musical college. You could just sit down there with two knitting needles on a biscuit tin. That was your drum kit. And you just say what you want to do. That's what opened doors for me. So at what point then, so you go back to the farm and, and you say to Penny, I want to start a band. At what point do you go, okay, let's start a band, but we want it to have a message. And our message is going to be this kind of anarchist sound. I mean, at what point did you start thinking like that? Or was it just something that was natural? No, it's just something that's natural. It just happened. I mean, me and Ben, uh, I, I remember saying to Ben, uh, he goes to me, um, and it was just me and him. No one else was there. Pen goes, what are you up to? And, oh, I think you're starting a punk band. He went, oh, well, um, I've got a drum kit. I'll play drums for you. I went, really? He went, yeah. And he said, what are we going to call ourselves? I went, um, how about Stormtrooper? Yeah, now, like we didn't call ourselves that, <laughs> I can see the I can see the cover now. Leather thongs. And, and uh, I mean, the first songs I wrote were fucking pretty dire. But uh, I wrote I Was Living, and, um, and it just came out. And it wasn't that, um, and people picked up on that. It wasn't, I mean, I, you know, it wasn't, we had this, let's do this and we'll do that uh, and that. Um, and I remember, um, it was, first of all, me and Pem were just going to be a drums and vocals outfit because no one else was doing it. And I was like, oh, well, okay then, all right, let's do that because it's exciting. We thought um, it wouldn't get further than the garden gate. We would just shock people that come around and we just sort of perform in the gardens or um, but the more people joined, the more songs we started to write. And it was like, oh, fucking hell, people are listening. You know, um, then we started fucking up playing live. So then we, we stopped getting out of it so much and concentrated on that. Um, and But it, there was never, ever a point of like, um, right, we'll do this. We'll call the band Crash and we'll all wear black and we'll do this and we'll have this and that. And it, it was all, um, as Penny Rambo says, it just came and it was other people that went oh my god and it's and i've spent the rest of my life explaining it wasn't like that <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I'm... Steve. so steve do you like christmas yeah fucking happy christmas 
My generation, I, I think it's hard to comprehend how encompassing punk was like between 77 and 79 in the UK. Like, was it really just punk swallowed the country and that was it and everyone was shocked and clutching their pearls? Or, or do you think it's come a lot more nostalgic now and people like to kind of blow it up than what it was? The minute you dyed your hair or, or wore plastic sandals or fluorescent socks or wore anything different, uh, you were in for a good kicking. And I'm serious about that. Uh, for me, it was, this is my time. I'm going to get into this. This is for working class kids. This ain't for intellectuals. Well, it is for intellectuals. Um, but uh, this time round, it's a bit like, uh, we're not like the hippies. We're in peace and love, man. And we'd like a better life, please. Uh, punk went, oh, we're the punk rock and we want a different life now. And if we don't get it, you're going to get a fucking kick in the edge, you bastard. That was the difference. Um, so it was like, um, and to just be able to piss off your parents was fucking brilliant. To, um, and to have battle scars from from you know, uh, walking down the street. You know, we're talking about 15-year-old kids being beaten up by 30-year-old blokes. So for you then, when you got the opportunity to kind of take all that rage and take all that anger and go to a studio when you record uh, your first album the feeling of the five thousand and and you spoke about do they owe us a living which i think is like still it's amazing how the songs that you wrote back then still resonate now and going into a studio and having that opportunity and having that mic in your hand for the first time and in a studio and having watched the clash like was it a case of fuck i'm living i'm living it i'm living my punk dream uh, sorry to disappoint you no um <laughs> No, it was never like that. It's just like, right, we're doing this, and we're not doing it like that. We're doing it like this. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, we're just doing this thing. I don't care if people like it. It's not until uh, um, now, um, when people come and talk to me, now I'll get a sense of what it is. That, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, that song, Do Thou Was Living, is timeless. It's, it does what it says on the tin, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I'm very proud to have fucking done that. But it's only now when people come up and say, Steve, thanks for changing my life, you know, that I get a sense of what we actually... Because before social media, which there, there was dumb internet back in those days, you never had an idea. And it's only now uh, that I realise uh, um, that those those songs, those words, um, and conflict and poison girls and subhumans and all the rest of the bands... You know, those songs are still to that to this day still relevant. Do you think that you kind of spoke about obviously no internet in 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 the seventies? Do you think if if the if you had social media and the internet that you that you had back then, do you think Crass would have made a, as much noise, or do you think they would have got drowned out by everyone else's noise? You know, but that's a really good question because I've often thought about that, and yeah, I don't know. Could if if Crass started tomorrow, would they? Could they last? I, I think we might be overshadowed by the sleeping bods or something. Is that, um, a, is that a band you look at now and go, oh, I can I can definitely like understand what they're doing and where they're trying to do and, and what they're saying? Is that is that a, like a band that you kind of compare us with, with Crass? Oh, oh, fucking hell. First time I heard them, uh, Matt uh, Worley, 
mate of mine who went, oh, listen to this. Um, hate's a strong word, but I'll use it against you when I'm pushing my little girl for the pub. And fuck you. And I'm like, that's what I should have done when I left Crass. Of course, you know. Um, but, it's, um, but also there's, you've got um, um, Bobby Villain out yeah. now. You know, uh, fuck you, we live here. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and if I had a chance to work with those people, I would do it at the, at the you know, yeah, I'd do it. You know, but... Um, Going back to that, I, I think the crash was of its time. Uh, we were writing about then, but the problem is it's still relevant now, hmm. and that's the weird thing. I could go out and do a crash gig tomorrow, and it would still make sense. That's the weird. So, um, if I go to bed tonight and I read Charles Dickens, that's still relevant. I read um, that someone stated that the Sex Pistols sang the words, but Crass lived them. Was there an element of? Of from the outside looking in and looking at the Sex Pistols and what they were doing that kind of built up an anger. That, that may be me putting words in your mouth. I don't know. Say that again. So essentially what I'm asking you was like Sex Pistols kind of everyone looks at the Sex Pistols. Well, not everyone. A lot of people look at the Sex Pistols and see them as the image of punk of its time. Me personally, I saw them as Malcolm McLaren's boy band. Like they were created because he went to America came to the UK and and he wanted to create a Richard Hell band and that's what happened to the Sex Pistols but I'm not going to go the Sex Pistols on punk because people who enjoy punk saw them as that so therefore fine okay that's fine for you who was who was living bunny ears the punk lifestyle and how did you see that how did you see the Sex Pistols who were marketing punk in the way that they were um I th- I thought they would um I have to say, back in the day, I thought they were fantastic. You know, I mean, I, um, the minute I hear the the opening chords of um, um, Anarchy in the UK, mm. uh, my hairs go up. You know, but I look at the, I look at certain members of that band today, and I'm like, you know, I don't think I can ever listen to your music again because of what you've been supporting or what you've been saying. Yeah. You know, um, I'm sure you can read behind the lines here, and yeah. You can look at all of those bands. Uh, that's the shame of it. Um, you can look at all of them uh, and go, you know, Generation X and Billy Idol, you know. Um, and it all became just a fucking pantomime. And the worst thing, I think the worst thing was that all of those bands, um, apart from the Buzzcocks, I have to say, um, all went to a, fucked off to America and never came back. Or if they did, they came back as a polished rock and roll band. And that was the shame of it. It's easy to forget um, that uh, the first look at the Sex Pistols was them looking so outrageous, you know, and the actual look of them. Um, and that was the main thing. Um, what they said then came, and that was brilliant. But then what came after that was all a bit disappointing. You kind of touched a little bit on like the, the, the violence that kind of surrounded punk. And like one of the things that is kind of that is just as synonymous as the music you created was the crass logo uh that dave king created um and and it kind of it kind of at the time i believe it was misconstrued by a lot of like the far right as this nordic kind of logo i mean how much trouble did that cause you as a band and because crass will yeah crass were quite well known for just basically going to the left and the right fuck off like we don't want to deal with your petty bullshit yeah, how much how much hassle did that actually create you? Um, not not real lot, um, because what we realised was that the craft symbol did look a bit 
Ooh, but you, that couldn't can look like a swastika. Um, oh, that can look like the Union flag, you know, mm. um, because it's only a, a jack when it's on a boat. Sorry, you don't like both, but um, yeah, it looks like a Union flag. Oh, blimey. Um, plus, we have these people. Um, are you are you right wing? No. Oh, you must be fucking lefties. No. Are you left wing? No. Oh, you must be fucking right wing. No. So that's why you put up the um, uh, the peace symbol to show that we've uh, ordered CND thing to show which was also um, a peace symbol. You know, the CND thing. Um, and then we put up the A, uh, the A in the circle to show that we were anarchists, that we were not political at all. So all the time, in the end, we end up with all these banners. I mean, you'd come to Kraski and it'd be like there's a fucking washing line up there with all these <laughs> sheets on me. Jesus Christ, how much do we have to justify what we're doing? That, that, that crest symbol is all over the world. Yeah. You know, it's, it's on people's arms, legs, it's on people's bodies, um, it's on T-shirts, it's on walls, and it's bigger than fucking Tesco's. The band broke up in 84. Was there a point yep. before that where actually you were like, I'm done with this? Or was it, because I've heard that you always, 84 was always the date that you always had in mind, like, that's it, this is going to run the line. I've no? got to stop you there. No, I don't know where you got that from, and I don't know why I've seen interviews with Penny Rambo, and he says, you know, oh, it, it's all, it wasn't, because um, on our records, we used to have um, 721984, so it was a countdown to 1984. Yeah. And I remember saying to Penn, right, this is all well and good. What happens when it actually, if we're still going in 1984, what did we do then, Penn? And he went, oh, we'd just do minus or something like that. I went, oh, okay, then. But it just happened. It was that coincidence that we left that last gig, uh, which turned out to be last gig, and Andy Palmer went, I want to leave the band. And it literally was just that. Yeah. So so was it Andy who wanted to leave, or what was it a case of, like, for yourself? Because I, I know we, we've kind of spoken very briefly before when, um, when we did a benefit show for uh, Punks Against Sweatshops, and I asked you the question of, like, could, like, would would the crass crowd like would allowed you to write a kind of like a love song or something like that like were you itching to do something different um or were you quite content with the world that you've created for yourself no i think by the end of it um uh, that that was the weird thing because um when we uh, going back to that last gig um we got in a van um and it was 20 minutes down the road and Andy Palmer went uh, on a, a jacket in on leave the band and there was this I think it was me and a couple of others even Liberty Man but oh no Andy don't don't Andy and then I went all quiet and 20 minutes later well, I think it was me and I said tell the truth Andy if it hadn't been you it would have been me hmm. I think by that time we were all burnt out I remember um, in 1983 uh, the year before there'd been a lot of heavy heavy discussions about where to take the band next it would be seen as terrorism now but how to, um, I'm talking about in the 80s, so how to take out the communications in the middle of London just to fuck it up, you know, and that kind of thing. Not killing people or anything like that, but, you know, that for me, that was, um, this wasn't my style of band. You know, I started a band to sort of get drunk and get stung and get fucking shagged or whatever or get beaten up, you know. So when uh, that happened, it was a sigh of relief. Um, and it wasn't until we stopped Crass that um, suddenly there was colour. It was like, oh, God, I ain't got to do that no more. I ain't got to wear that no more. 
Yeah. I've got to be this no more. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was a part of it. It's like, oh, fuck, when that guy came up to me and he goes, I used to, didn't used to be in that band called Crass. Yeah, fucking hell, you know, I'm now an old has-been. I mean, you kind of touched on it, but how was it moving away from being Steve Ignorant, the vocalist from Crass, to being Steve Williams, whereabouts you wanted to do your own things? I mean, you, you've had a successful career away from Crass with other bands. So was it difficult for, for you personally, and did you feel like it was a weight of, like, Crass is always going to be a part of my life, and I don't want it to be right now? Because you seem to have, you've definitely embraced Crass, I think, a lot more as, as you've got older. I mean, this is someone who doesn't know you at all, but from the outside looking in. Was it a case at time where perhaps you're like, fuck Crass, man, like, I, I'm done. Like, that was something that I did, and, and I want to be known for the person who's what I'm doing now. Of course. Um, but how the fuck do you do it? You know, uh, I mean, you know, I'm not having to go at anybody uh, from uh, Crass, but when Crass finished, uh, it was amazing because uh, Phil Free and Eve Lib- uh, and uh, Joy DeViva had moved away anyway. Pete Wright wasn't living in a dark house, so it had all split. Um, obviously, Andy was off. Uh, Penny Rambo went back to writing his book, uh, books. Um, Jay went back to doing artwork. Uh, uh, feel free and joy. I think we're working at a health food shop. Uh, Pete Wright went back to doing his, you know, his DIY sort of building stuff. And what was left for me? Uh, what do I do? Go back to working in the supermarket, which was the last job I had. Fuck it. Um, shit. Uh, and there was no support. I was gone. It was gone. Um, I couldn't uh, pick up the phone and say to Paul Weller, for example, oh, Paul, do you fancy doing a, you know, fancy doing an album together? I, was, I couldn't do that. I was right back on my own. No one in Crass wanted to do another band because we just done Crass. And I was like, well, I've got this acoustic thing. Um, so I knew I wanted to do something uh, different. Uh, but there was nothing. You know, I was into rap at the time, as I said, and that's where I got in touch with conflict. Hmm. But, um, yeah, I was, I was totally lost. Totally lost, you know, um, with no support. Um, and I, I was up there, and all of a sudden I'm like, fucking hell, shit. And I remember looking in the in the uh, local paper uh, for jobs, um, and I was already, I was 29 years old, and I was already in a scrappy, because yeah. uh, I had no qualifications. What have you been doing for the last seven years? Um, screaming down the microphone. <laughs> but, you know, that ain't going to get a fucking job. Um and um, I, I, I sort of knew um, that because I've been Steve Ignorant from Crass, that would always give me a foot in the door, if you know what I mean. Um, so, of course, I've used that. And, and, and the funny thing is that every band I joined, uh, like Conflict, you know, I had to leave that in the end because I, I had these ideas of what I wanted to do. But it, that wasn't fair because it was Colin's band. Um, then I was in a band called, um, oh, fucking hell, Schwarzenegger. Um, and that went somewhere else. That was getting there, but ego problems there. Then I was in was in a band with Gary from Dirt, Stratton Mercenaries, almost getting there. But I remember saying to Gary when we first started that band, you know, I went, oh, you know, Gary, I've got this idea, I want to do acoustic stuff. And he went, I, I, I said, I'm fed up with that free call French shit. He went, I am as well. Fuck me, you know, um, a year into the band, I went, right, okay. I've got an acoustic thing. He went, I don't play acoustic. I went, what? He went, I don't play acoustic. I went, that's no reason. No, so I believe that one. And it weren't until I met Pete and Carolyn Pete um, with Slice of Life that I was able to do the stuff that I always wanted to do. Hmm. It's acoustic-y, 
thing. You know, I realised, and I've said this in the slices as well, when we go to gigs, all people want to talk to me about is crass. I don't give a fuck. The way I see it, if people have been out on a shitty Wednesday night when it's pissing the rain to come to a crass gig, uh, to see me scream and get beaten up for it, or if they've bought my record or they've bought a pair of socks or whatever, the least I can give them is five minutes of my time. So something that's a bit left field for people uh, might know this. Um, you, you've become a, a volunteer lifeboatman in the area that you live in, and I, I, I was. I'm not anymore. I'm okay. too old now. I was. Yeah. Okay. Um, because the reason that you kind of came back to Crass was was to do a benefit show to raise money for the, for the people in in the. In, uh, I, I don't know what the actual word is. Lifeboat community. I yeah. Know. Yeah. Yeah. And um, if it wasn't for that, do you think you would have gone back to Crass at all? Uh, no, that's a really weird thing because what happened was that me and Yona uh, moved up to. Um, me and Mum died and all that sort of thing, so there was no written message anymore. And Yona go. We we were living in a, um, a you know like Brookside. Yeah. You know, Close. like what? Yeah, yeah. One of them. Living in one of them. The other guys want to move. I mean, oh, for fuck's sake. Went to look at Cambridge, fuck that. All lorries and fucking straight roads. Went to Lincolnshire, fuck that. Man. Jesus Christ. I ain't fucking living there. Uh, went to North, came to Norfolk, uh, drove over the bridge, and it was just, for her, it was just like Holland. And for me, it was like being in Essex again before it had been fucked up by um, London spread down. So we moved it. Fucking weren't here um, two months. Phone call. Right, um, Steve, um, blah, blah. Would uh, You've got a 30-minute slot. Hammersmith, um, Palais. Bus cops are playing. Conflicts are playing. Blah, blah, playing. I went, oh. Yeah, and I were, really weren't into it. And, uh, and then a couple of friends come over for dinner, and, and, and I told them about it. And they went, well, why not? I was like, oh. And I, I suddenly got this idea of, like, fucking hell. Oh, Crass never played uh, the Feeding the 5000 album live. So that's what I'll do. Don't announce it. We'll just do it in between every other... We'll go in between Stiff Little Fingers and or whatever. And we'll just do it and we'll blow everyone else off stage. We'll go, <clears throat> so I told the bloke this. It was, and, he, and the phone went dead. He calls back 20 minutes later. He goes, right, we scrap that. You're on the two nights headline at Shepherd's Bush Empire. Blah, blah. I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> and that's where it all started. Um, the, the, the th- it wasn't to do with the lifeboat. Um, but the thing is that... Um, Every gig I do, uh, a bit of money goes to a, some sort of cause. And uh, made so much money, I was able to give a load of money to the to the local lifeboat. You know, I've got this money, what do I do with it? And when I want to see where it goes, gave it to them. It was filmed. Um, they bought life jackets with it. So it weren't spent on petrol yeah. or anything like that. Uh, and those life jackets that the punks paid for, everyone who came to those gigs, that's gone on to save lives because I've worn one. So when you were going to do that, did you reach out to the rest of the guys and go, I'm going to do this show, do you fancy doing it? 
Or was it a case of, this is mine, I want to do this alone, I want to stand on the stage and just enjoy no, it? Was a, no, there was a real fucking problem with that because um, of course it was a Shepherd's British Empire and it's like, oh my God, that's a corporate thingy. And, blah, blah, blah. and there's all this fuss. Um, Penny Rambo phoned me and he went, um, Steve, I don't, want you to use I don't want you to use any of my songs. I was like, oh, fuck. You know, it's all the fucking set going, Jesus Christ. Fuck, what do I do? What do I do? And if I was going, Steve, if it weren't for your voice, there wouldn't be a crash if you don't. So they're yours. Fucking do it. And, and in the end, I was like, fuck it. What are they going to do? Sue me. Um, and thank fuck, pen phone, you know, got in touch. And he went, no, Steve, go for it. I was being silly. Um, so that's the way that me and Pen have always been. It's... Um, it, it, I think it it wasn't part of me didn't want to do it because I thought oh, I might be de- might be destroying uh, the myth of Crash if you know what I mean. But the other part of me was like, well, fuck it. Didn't we always say there was there was no gods, no heroes, and no myths and no legends, and and that's why I do it now um, because it, it, I see myself um, uh, as a bit of an ambassador wherever I go with whatever band I go to. People want to talk to me about Crash. And as I said before, if I'm the person they can come up to and see, I will give them my time. Yeah. That's why I don't that's why I don't use dressing room. I'm always at the bar. So I'm accessible. Thank you so much for talking to me. Um it's been fantastic. Thank you for being so honest and open uh with me. And um I hope you and your loved ones have a great Christmas. And uh twenty twenty one is something that's a little bit better than this. When the sleigh bells ring the snow and I'll wish it could be Christmas. Yes, that's what Park case that is just another trade for that fellow country will say. Battle top rock of plastic traces, your boss addition about the ton of Thank you so much to Steve for taking the time to talk to me and I wish him a very happy Christmas. Thank you also to the band who sponsored the podcast at the start of this episode, To The Helpless. Go support them. Go buy some of their stuffs. Uh, a link for the band is in the episode description of this podcast. Please also go show me some love by going to the Apple Podcast site. Rate and review the podcast. It costs you nothing but helps the podcast massively. Also, during Christmas, if you haven't got your friends or, or family, anything, uh, send them this. Send them the podcast. It costs you fuck all and they might enjoy it. This is the last episode of 2020. We are going to have a little break, but we'll be back in late January 2021. Thank you so much for the support of this year. It has been rough for everyone. It's been a hard one. If you haven't achieved everything you wanted to achieve this year, give yourself some slack. There was a fucking global pandemic. Uh, but let's make 2021 our fucking year, yeah? Let's uh, let's grab it by the throat. And uh, I, I don't know where I was going with that kind of very violent metaphor. Just try and enjoy 2021 is what I'm trying to say. I truly appreciate you. Stay well. Have a very happy Christmas or happy holidays, however you want to say it. And uh, I will see you in the new year. Bye-bye. Hey! Bye. 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 Bye.